Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> My Uncle Mac once told me he, he wouldn't talk about his time in the war hardly at all, but one day I, I got him to talk just a little bit, and he told me how he and his fellow Marines fought their way up the side of a hill. I think it was Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima, only to find when they got up higher and higher that the enemy had retaken the ground below them. The enemy had come out of holes in the ground, out of caves that plunged deep into the mountain, and those Marines that had taken that ground at unbelievable cost. This is one of the bloodiest battles in American history. At unbelievable cost, found out that they had to take it again. You know, we preachers, we... We think we've taken ground because we've preached a sermon series. You know, it's always a really important sermon series, but we think we've taken ground. And then we find out that neither we nor our church can hold it. During this Bold Faith Initiative, we've covered some ground, but can we hold it? If we can't live it, we can't keep it. As I was reflecting on that, during the process of thinking what I was going to preach this month, I began to ask myself, what do we need to know in order to put what we've been learning into practice? What changes do we need to make so that we can truly love God and our neighbor in an ongoing way? Sermon can't do that. Series of sermons can't do that. The best sermon in the world can't do that. I mean, if it could, we'd all be living the Sermon on the Mount, right? So what do we need to think? What decisions do we need to make? What changes do we need to implement? Those questions led me to Ephesians 4 and 5, and and a passage that helps us understand how change happens in a Christian's life. There I found some things that we need to know and things we need to do for our lives to be different, for our lives to be characterized by love of God and love of neighbor. So let me read the first verse of Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So here's the first thing we need to know. We need to get this into our heads, and we must try not to forget it. We, if we've come over to God's side through our confidence in Jesus, we are people with a calling. Literally, the calling with which you were called. That means your life, if you're a Christian, has a purpose that your non-Christian neighbors do not share. It means you have work to accomplish and a leader to whom you must answer. You have a calling. This week is all over the news that former FBI Director Robert Mueller received a calling. See, he got a calling that's going to change how his life proceeds from now on for the next few months. For him, it's no longer business as usual. He'll spend his time differently if he had not received a calling. He'll think differently. He'll involve himself with different people. And he'll answer to the deputy attorney general, the one who called him. Well, just as surely as Mr. Mueller has a calling on his life, you, if you're a Christian, have a calling on yours. Now, the Bible describes that calling in a variety of ways. Uh, for one thing, it comes from God and from heaven. That's 2 Thessalonians 1 in Hebrews chapter 3. It comes to us right where we are. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And it leads us where we ought to be. That's Philippians chapter 3. If you're like me, it's easy to think that 
other people, important people, they have callings, but not me. I mean, we're just too normal, right? We're not those kind of people. But that is God's genius. He issues a calling to normal people, right where they are. Richard Halverson, who was a former chaplain of the United States Senate, used to sum up in the church where he preached, he often would sum this up beautifully in a benediction that he frequently used. He would say at the end of the service, wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose, and you're being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of his Spirit, wants to do something in and through you. And then he'd say, believe this and go in his grace, his love, his power. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You have a calling. The Bible describes this calling as being full of hope and promise. It opens a new world to us and us to a new world. And the Bible insists we take this calling seriously. It's a dreadful thing to receive so high a calling and then ignore it. That's why the Apostle Paul urges his church friends to live a life worthy of their calling. Now, the church will play a key role in that. It's no accident that Paul immediately follows up his charge to live a life worthy of the calling with a passage about the church. The church sits at the intersection of human need and God's grace. That's Eugene Peterson. Where men and women who don't fit are welcomed. Where neglected children are noticed. Where people find they are part of Jesus' story. If we're going to regard our calling, we can't disregard our church. We can't simultaneously be in our calling and outside the church. That's not how it works. The church is an important part of this. If you're a Christian, you have a calling. You've been called to serve Jesus in his kingdom, in the church and in the world. Now, your calling may extend beyond the church. In fact, it will extend beyond the church. And for some people, like Dave Brown, for example, in Forgotten Man Ministries, it will extend to places like the jail. For Andrea, it will extend to places like the middle of Africa. But that calling flows through the church. It's in the church that we receive our calling, and it's in the church that the resources we need to succeed in it are distributed. Now that's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. By the way, if you want to go deeper in this, and we are not going to go deep, we're going to go far, but we're not going to go deep today. You need to come on Wednesday night over to Big B Coffee where we'll talk about this in more detail. If you are a Christian, you have a calling. It's not to make lots of money. It's not to wield political or social power, or even to change our culture, though a life worthy of the calling might do any one of those things. Our calling is to be Christ's person, serving his interests in our setting. Wherever Christians live, in the U.S. or France, in Tanzania or in Russia, it makes no difference. Their allegiance is first to King Jesus, and only then to their nation. They are his people serving his purposes where he's placed them. A life worthy of that calling is going to be a shared life. Jesus doesn't send his people to the church of the Lone Ranger. We are in this together. We have to have each other's backs. 
The unity of Christ's people is more important than our comfort or our desire. And so verse 3, we literally hasten or we hurry to keep the unity of the Spirit. You have a calling, a job to do, a life that counts, your position for service in the kingdom of God. You don't need to go somewhere else to find your calling. But you might need to become someone else in order to fulfill it. You might need to change. And that brings me to the next point on this quick survey. An extraordinary life of of love to God and neighbor is not a life of business as usual. If you think you can just go on the way things have always been, and somehow you will live this extraordinary life of love to neighbor, it's not going to happen. Your life will not look like everyone else's if you live to this high calling. You received a calling your neighbors didn't receive if they're not Christians. So your life is not going to look like theirs. If you find yourself wishing that you had your non-Christian neighbor's life, his car or house or spouse, then something's wrong. God's plan is for your non-Christian neighbor to wish that he had your life. Are you living the kind of life, joyful, peaceful, free, that your neighbors wish they had? Read verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord. that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Uh, Here's a question we'll talk about on Wednesday night. Go deep. Aren't these guys Gentiles? Interesting question. According to Paul, most of the people around us are characterized by a futility of thinking. Their thoughts don't lead them anywhere. They just circle around, circle around experiencing pleasure, acquiring possessions, attaining prestige. They're all wrapped up in how they look and what they want to have and what people think of them. They're sometimes happy, but the fact is they're never fulfilled. They genuinely believe, I mean, they honestly believe this, that some pleasure or possession or honor will make them happy. So they try to get those things, sometimes at the cost of their own family and friends. And if they achieve happiness at all, it doesn't last. And with each new conquest, with each new price paid, the duration of their happiness grows shorter. They may get a new car or a new house or a new job or a new spouse, but the fact is they're still stuck with the same old self. The age in which we live is constantly telling us that we will be happy if. If we look better, if we have more, if we impress people, that message is the gospel of a derelict age. It plays in the background of almost every conversation, every song, TV show, and movie, even every newscast. It influences us even when we're not conscious of it. In fact, it influences us most when we're not conscious of it. If we accept that gospel, 
the gospel of a derelict age will never live a life worthy of our calling. We can't believe that and believe Jesus at the same time. We have lived under the narrative of that false gospel for a long time. It has affected us. We need change. But how do we do that? See, we're creatures of habit. Not just in our actions, but much more profoundly in our thoughts and our feelings. Our life flows from our thoughts. More precisely, it flows through our thoughts. We can't change our lives unless we change our thinking. We can't just say, well, from now on, I'm going to love my neighbor. Our habitual ways of thinking and feeling will prevent us from doing that. We may start, but we won't finish. Any real change, and loving your neighbor is a real change for most people, will require a change in the way we think. Nothing short of the renewal of our minds will suffice. And that brings us to verses 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Now, pause there. Paul was urging his Christian friends to change. But he understood that wouldn't happen unless they chose to change. They had a choice to make. See, we're all caught in a current that will continue carrying us in the same direction unless we take action. Your life is going to be the way it is now, 10 years from now, unless you take action. No one else can make the choice to change for us. Though, if you're a parent, you know how many times you wish you could have made that choice, right? We must choose to change. And Paul tells his friends, make that choice. Choose to be different. Put off the old self, he tells them. Without that choice, we won't change. It is indispensable choice. We won't drift into a new life. That's not the direction the current's flowing. We must choose to change. No one can make that choice for us except perhaps God, and he won't. This is our choice to make. But making that choice, I'm going to change, that's just the beginning. If you make the choice today to change, you say, I'm going to change, and you really mean it. I mean, you mean it with all your worth. But that's all you do. Your change won't last a month. Probably not a week. Perhaps not even a day. See, choice is an act of willpower. And here's the thing about willpower. Isn't that very powerful? We can't run our lives on willpower. That's why people make choices all the time. I'm going to change. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get fit. I'm going to start reading. I'm going to do this or that. And they don't do it. And they really mean to do it. They choose to do it. But willpower is not very powerful. Our lives are not designed to run on willpower. Willpower gets us started, but after that, we must rely on more powerful engines. Willpower, the power to choose, it's just not strong. It's like your car's starter motor. You ever see your car's starter motor? I know you guys have. I've only seen mine upside down. I'm laying underneath the car, and I'm sticking a screwdriver up there trying to, to bridge that, make it spark. The starter motor is like 10 inches long, you know? 
If you could connect it directly to your drivetrain and your car, it wouldn't make your wheels turn even an inch. It just doesn't have that kind of power. And yet you need it. You can't do it without it. When you turn your ignition key, the battery sends electricity into that little motor. There's a solenoid on the side of this little motor, which starts the motor spinning and it engages the gear with the flywheel, which turns the much more powerful car engine over. And then the starter motor's job is done. That's what it has to do, is engage that big motor. Willpower is much the same way. You can't do without it, but it's wholly insufficient to drive our lives. And many people try to drive their lives by willpower. And it never, ever works for them. And most of them never figure out why. They think, oh, I just must be a weak person. No, you're relying on the wrong engine. The choice must be made, but the choice only starts that more powerful engine of our mind-body habits. Now, remember the context. Paul has just said, stop living like your non-Christian neighbors. That's verse 17. That means change. We need to put off the old self, verse 22. But willpower alone can't accomplish that, never can. We need something far more powerful. We need to be renewed in our minds. So verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, literally be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's where the power is stored that can change our lives. Now, you can't renew your own mind. It's like trying to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't do it. The renewal is work God does by his spirit. But our choice to change To put off that old self is like the key in the ignition. It's God who renews our minds, but there are things that we can do to cooperate with him. We can, the chief among them, we can read, think about, and even memorize scripture, which is enormously helpful for anyone who really wants to change. We can talk about it with other people. We can refuse and reject thoughts of revenge, of envy, of personal glory, the thoughts that powered the old self. It really is possible to do this. Some people think, oh, I could never change. Yes, you can. Absolutely you can. We can intentionally replace old thoughts with new ones about what's noble, lovely, right, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. As we cooperate with God in the renewal of our minds, we will make space, this is verse 24, to put on the new self. This isn't rocket science. You don't have to be a spiritual heavyweight or a religious genius to experience lasting, spiritually authentic transformation. Anyone who belongs to Christ can experience it. You just have to choose and then work at it over a period of time in cooperation with God's Spirit. As you do that, the powerful engine of mind-body habits begins to affect change. Your new self will be able to do things your old self would never attempt or even want to attempt. Like love your neighbor. You actually want to do that, long to do it, and see ways to do it. People who, chapter 4, verse 1, live a life worthy of their calling, will be, chapter 4, verse 17, different from their neighbors. And that difference will be most apparent, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, in the way they love. In what they love. Paul writes, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A life worthy of the calling is a life of love, of risky, surprising, 
transforming love. We can't lead that kind of life without changing the way we think. And a change in the way we think will never happen unless we choose to be different. See, your mind won't just suddenly change one day. You must choose to be different. And the choice to be different rests on the calling we've received from God to be Christ's people. Now let's put all this together. Because we want to hold the ground that we've covered and not give it back. What do we need to know? And what do we need to do to love our neighbors and to love God? We need to know we have a calling. You have a calling. God has a purpose in you being right where you are. So find it. And you know what? It's not that hard to find it. You want to find what's, what is this purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? Look for ways to love in the situation you currently find yourself. In your home, in your job, where you are. If you're a Christian, your life's not your own. You belong to the Christ and to his people. Does your daily life reflect that? Are you keeping communications open with him? Are you constantly looking for ways to serve his kingdom? You're not on your own time. You need to know, you need to remember, you have a calling. Well, I'm retired. I'm 80 years old. You have a calling. I'm still a teenager. You have a calling if you belong to Christ. And because you have a calling, you need to change. People with a calling don't live like their neighbors who have no calling. Stop trying to keep up with your neighbors and start trying to keep up with Jesus. Could an outsider, someone, say, from another country, somebody that Andrea knows and Chad, come over here, spend a few months getting to know you and the people around you and realize that your life is guided by a different purpose than most of the other people that she sees? Would that person see a difference in you? You know the the difference that people notice? It's not primarily in how we dress or what we eat or drink or even how we spend our Sunday mornings. The difference they notice is how we love. You have a calling. It requires you to change. And more than anything else, that change is to love. All right, I'm going to be quiet for a few moments, and you be quiet too. Maybe the Lord wants to speak to us. I'll let him talk to you. Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Make us people who love you and will give ourselves for our neighbors. Not just people who want to do that, but people who do it. 
day in and day out, and who love it. We ask this in Jesus' name.